This is the Serious Sira Podcast, Episode 4, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. <laughs> Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Welcome to Serious Sira episode 4. This is the podcast for serious Muslims who love the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and want to discover the beautiful life model he left for us to follow. In today's class, we're going to discuss the following topics. The biographies of the Prophet's daughters including Zainab, Ruqayya, Umm Kulthum, and Fatima. We will also discuss the difference between Sunnis and Shiites, the beginning of Revelation, the miraculous nature of the Qur'an, Khadijah's loyalty, anha, and the beginning of the mission of Islam. Stay tuned for Serious Sira Episode 4. Having said that, also the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made the, the wealthy people, made them feel responsible for their brothers because in the this ummah of yours is one ummah and I am your Lord so worship me so the prophet peace and blessing be upon him made a bond of brotherhood between these Muslims the blacks and the whites and the Arabs and the non-Arabs and the Persians and the men and the women and the rich and the poor they were one ummah and they were a magnificent this is our, I believe, fourth session of the Sira class. Inshallah, when we left off last week, we had talked a little about Prophet Muhammad Wasallam's family. We spoke about uh, his marriage to Khadija radiallahu anha and how this had to be a union of love where two people just fell in love with each other. We also spoke about the two young boys who came into his household under his care. One was Zaid ibn Haritha and the other was Ali ibn Abi Talib and Ali ibn Abi Talib was actually his cousin. And that, that was a son of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu uncle uh, Abu Talib. We spoke a little bit, a little bit about his, ch- his children, but so far we only spoke, I believe, about his first child, his son Al Qasim, and we also spoke about how all but one of his children were born from Khadija. Uh, only one, only one of his ch- of his children that was not born from Khadija, anha, was his son Ibrahim, who was born from uh, a Coptic slave that was sent to him by the king of Egypt. We didn't speak. We haven't spoken yet much about his other daughters, so we're going to spend a little bit of time today talking about the rest of the Prophet's household. Now, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam had four daughters from Khadijah, and their names were Zainab, Raqayya, Umm Kulthum, and Fatima. All of his eldest daughter was named Zainab. Before her uh, father, Prophet Muhammad, that is, received the revelation, she was married to a Qurayshi man, a man named Abu Nas ibn Rabia. They had stayed married throughout the beginning of Revelation and all the way up until the Muslims migrated to Medina. And when the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu migrated to Medina, the Hijra, Zainab, that's his daughter that is, did not, want to, did not want to go with him. She didn't go with him and she didn't really want to leave her husband either. And her father didn't make her leave her husband. Uh, um, Abu al her husband, had not converted to Islam. Zainab was Muslim, but her husband had not taken his shot. He had not converted to Islam yet. But at that time, 
it wasn't universally prohibited for Muslim women to marry non-Muslim men. The ayahs of the Quran that expressly forbade Muslim women from marrying non-Muslim men came many, many years later. Uh, very close, actually, to the conquest of Mecca, you know, almost almost 23 years later. So it was a long, sorry, well, almost almost uh, 13 years later than uh, uh, after the Hijrah. So it was a long time between then, 10 years later, my bad. 10 years after the Hijrah, uh, those verses came down that prohibited it. And I'm remembering this because I remember the story surrounding the, those verses. But we'll get to that later, inshallah. And those verses are in Suratul Mumtahina. Surah Al-Mumtahina, I believe, uh, which is the, the woman to be examined. So that's the surah that, um, where the verses come down, where Allah says, They are not permissible for them, nor are they permissible for them. Speaking about non-Muslim men and Muslim women. So those verses had not been revealed as yet. Now when the Prophet uh, migrated to, to Medina. You know, a couple of years later, he had the first major battle of Badr uh, against the Quraysh. And her husband, Zainab's husband, Abu Asib bin Rabi, he actually took part in that battle uh, against the Muslims. And he was captured by the Muslims. So Zainab, who was still living in Mecca, she sent his ransom to the Prophet to the Muslims to have him released. Uh, but when one of the conditions for the Prophet Muhammad uh, releasing her husband was that Zainab had to leave Mecca and join the Muslims in, um, in Medina. So for many years, Zainab lived in Medina while her husband, Abu al remained in Mecca. But eventually, he did accept Islam and he did so just a little bit before the Muslims conquered Mecca. And when he did that, Prophet Muhammad allowed them to you know, return to each other as husband and wife and he didn't make them renew the marriage contract or anything like that. Right now, the Prophet saw some second daughter was named Raqaya. She was married to one of the sons of Abu Lahab, who was one of the Prophet's uncles, and he, they they were married before the message of Islam came to her father. But after Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam began to call people to Islam, and as we all know, and we'll be discussing soon, inshallah, Abu Lahab turned against him. He turned; he was very harsh against him and one of the his biggest enemies, along with Abu Jahl and a few others. Now, Abu Lahab was one of the worst ones. We know Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala sent down verses over the Quran cursing Abu Lahab. When Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala says, "Abadu Billahi Min Nashitan Rajim Bismillahi Rahmani Rahim." Tabat yada abi lahabu wa tabba ma awna anhu maluhu wa ma kasaba. Curse are the hands of Abu Lahab. His wealth and his earnings will not benefit him any. Uh, so this is a. This happened, the match, of course, between Rakaya and Abu Lahab's son was evidently before Islam came. And after. Uh, Allah, after Prophet Muhammad began to preach Islam, Abu Lahab made his son divorce her. After her, her husband divorced her, uh, she married one of the Prophet's, Raqqaya, married one of the Prophet's closest companions and one of the first people to accept Islam, Uthman ibn Al-Than. Now, many years later, Uthman would become the third caliph or the third leader of the Muslim word of the Muslim world, and he would die as a shaheed. He would die as a martyr. And we probably won't get to his death too much because it happens outside of the life of Prophet Muhammad after Prophet Muhammad died. So we may not, but it, it probably will come up again at some point. Um, I'll be speaking about all of the major companions individually. So I will speak about his his uh, his life and death eventually. But for now, just know that he did die as a shaheed. He died as a martyr. So she went from, that is Rakaya, she went from being married to the son of the enemy of Allah to being married to one of the first Muslims. Uthman ibn Affan was one of the first people to accept Islam. He was a man 
who migrated twice, and we'll talk about his two migrations as in time, inshallah. He was a future caliph, one of the leaders of the Muslim world, and he was also mostly the man responsible for preserving the compilation of the Quran by Allah's permission. Uh, we, we, may, we may talk about this in detail, about how Uthman anhu was responsible for preserving the Quran and during his, his caliphate. He was the primary one responsible for putting the, the compiling the Quran in the way that we have it now. And that will come later, and it's a long discussion, but it's something that does need to be discussed, inshallah, later on. Now, Rakaya made the migration with her second, with her second husband, Uthman ibn, ibn Affan. Uthman ibn Affan to Abyssinia, and that's modern-day Ethiopia. And we'll talk about this in the coming weeks, inshallah. This migration was before the Hijrah to Medina, before the migration to Medina. Uh, basically, things got very harsh for the Muslims in Mecca. We haven't got to that point yet, but I'm just letting you know what happened. Things later on will get very harsh for the Muslims in Mecca. And so they went to Abyssinia, or what is now what we now call Ethiopia, for as refugees. And we'll get to that soon, inshallah, but just letting you know. Okay, so she and Uthman, uh, they made the migration to Abyssinia. But then they came back to Mecca after a short while, and then soon after that, they made the migration to Medina with all the other Muslims. She had one son, Rakaya that is, the daughter of Prophet Muhammad She had one son that we know of who died as a young boy. And the story that I've heard was that um, a chicken pecked her son in the eye, and his eye got infected. And from there, the, infect, the infection spread and eventually killed him. And one story that I've heard, and I've been trying to find verification for it, but the brother who told me, I, you know, I, I trust his knowledge, but he told me that um, after her son got this infection and he was nearing death, Rakaya went to her father and she said, and I'm paraphrasing because I haven't been able to find the text. I don't heard the story, so I have to paraphrase a little bit. She went to her father and said that isn't it true that every messenger, every prophet of Allah has been given one dua that will not be rejected by Allah, that Allah will not reject at all. And so she asked him to make that dua for her son to save his life. Rasulullah saw he knew his grandson was dying and he loved his daughter, he loved his grandson, but he had a greater responsibility for that. And and once again, paraphrasing, and may Allah forgive me if I'm off a little bit, but he essentially said that he couldn't do it because he was saving that dua to make... Um, to intercede for his people, his followers in the next life. And so he had to think of a bigger, you know, a bigger thing, a bigger problem than just using his one dua to save his own family. He had to use that dua, that one dua that would not be rejected, to save the entire Muslim Ummah. And Allah knows how much that how how much of how much of us will actually be saved. But he had to hold on to that dua and he couldn't use that dua to save her to save her son. And we know you know, I spoke already before about how many of the Prophet's own family members, his own children and Rakaya herself for that matter, uh, all died, except with the exception of Fatima anha, all died within his lifetime. So for Rakaya, her last three or four years of life were very difficult. First, her mother, Khadija, died, and we haven't got to that yet, but first her mother died, and her mother died just before the Hijrah to uh, Medina. So we know that Rakaya migrated to Abyssinia with Uthman, then they came back to Mecca, and they came back to Mecca, and a little bit after, I believe, Khadija died while she was at, while she was in Abyssinia. So she comes back to Mecca, and the Muslims are still being oppressed, and her mother had just died. And then uh, a little bit after that, they make the Hijrah to Medina. And then a little bit after that, 
her son died. Um, her son died while they were in Medina. That's the boy who was pecked in the eye by the chicken. And then not too long after that, she got sick herself, and she died a little bit over a year after the hijrah. Now, the time that she died, uh, she was sick, actually, during the Battle of Badr. And Prophet Muhammad Sassam excused her husband, Uthman, from the Battle of Badr so he could take care of her. And so Uthman didn't take part in that battle, but instead he had received permission from the Prophet Muhammad Sassam to take care of his wife. The Prophet's third daughter was named Umm Kulthum, and she was also married to one of Abu Lahab's sons before the message of Islam came. And just like her sister, Raqqaya, when Prophet Muhammad وسلم, began to preach Islam openly, Abu Lahab made his son divorce her. Now, just like, um, just like Raqqaya, after, she, after uh, her husband divorced her, Abu Lahab's son divorced her, she moved back into the Prophet's household, which is the the custom in Islam, when a woman is divorced, they're supposed to move back into their, their family's household, if possible. That's a, you know, Back then, the family structure was much more intact and much stronger than we have it now. So she moved back into her, prophet, into her father's household, and later on, after Raqqaya died, after the hijrah, and after her sister Raqqaya died, Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu gave her a marriage to Uthman ibn Affan. So Uthman actually, Uthman ibn Affan was married to two of the Prophet's daughters. And he is sometimes called Dhun Nurain, or the owner of two lights, because he was married to two of the Prophet's daughters, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Umm Kothum, she died about six years after the Muslims. She died sorry, a little bit after the Muslims conquered Mecca. The Muslims conquered Mecca roughly 10 years after the Hijrah. And she died to Uthman for about, she died, um, a little bit after Muslims conquered Mecca. So she was married to Uthman for about six years. Now the Prophet's youngest daughter was Fatima, and we have the most information about her. Uh, she was known to be the Prophet's favorite daughter. She was also the youngest, as I just said. She was, she was the youngest, and there's so much that we can say about her life. We really, if we really want to give, do justice, we would probably have to just, you know, um, commit an entire day just to talk about her life and all the events surrounding her, but we really don't have the time for that. But I'm going to just point out a few quick highlights. First of all, she was one of the most blessed women, and she's often mentioned as one of the four women to reach perfection, and including her mother Khadija, Miriam, uh, the mother of Jesus, alayhi salam, and Asiya, the wife of Pharaoh, who was also the foster mother of Prophet Musa, alayhi salam. Inshallah, we'll talk about how she, Fatima, would defend her father when he was abused by the Quraysh later on. But for now, we'll just talk about the highlights of her life. She was married to the Prophet's cousin, Ali ibn Abi Talib. Remember, they grew up in the same household, so there was probably an affinity already anyway between them, and Allah knows best. But they were roughly about the same age. So uh, Fatima married Ali ibn Abi Talib, and they had, they had two sons together and two daughters. The sons were named Hassan and Hussein, and the daughters were named Zainab and Umm Kulthum. And you'll notice that her two daughters had the same names as two of her sisters. And so, you know, most likely she named her daughters after their aunts, Rukaya and, I'm sorry, Zainab and Umm Kulthum. Now, there's a lot of controversy surrounding her life, as well as the life of her husband Ali and their sons in Hassan and Hussein. And most of this is, most of this controversy is really fueled by the different perceptions or perspectives on their lives between the primary two groups of Muslims or well, the primary group of Muslims which is Ahmad Sunnah wal Jama'at or most of us say Sunni Muslims and the Shiite sect, uh, Shia. So that's where most of the controversy comes in between with Fatima and Ali and Hassan and Hussein or the Allahu Anhum uh, mostly because of the differences between the Shia and the Sunni and uh, we can talk about that you know, later on, but I don't want to get too deep into it because it's, it's a long conversation and 
you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to divert too much, but basically the Shiites, they hold these four uh, people, Fatima, Ali, Hassan, and Hussein to a very, very high level and almost to the point of worshiping them. And some extreme branches of the Shia, they actually do worship them or they commit shirk in their, in the process of their quote unquote worship to Allah. They commit shirk by either praying through them and stuff like that. And many Shiites in the love for the fam- for the family of Rasulullah also known as Ahlul Bayt. Ahlul Bayt literally means the people of the house, but in Islamic terminology it means the family of Prophet Muhammad. So they go so far in their love for Ahlul Bayt or the people or the family of Prophet Muhammad, they they curse or even defame some of the Sahaba, including Uthman whom we just spoke of, and Abu Bakr, who we'll speak of soon, inshallah, and Umar ibn al-Khattab, who we'll speak of soon also, and the Prophet's wife, Aisha, may Allah be pleased with all of them. They sometimes curse these Sahabas and other Sahabas because at some point in their lives, they had um, there's a civil war, or they believe that some of these Sahabas had cheated Ali or Fatima out of, some, out of something. So we won't go, I don't want to get too much into the, into the Sharia, and I don't want that's a... Uh, that, that leads to flame wars. I don't want to get into that right now. But for us, our part as Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, or Sunni Muslims, however you want to call yourself, or if you just want to call yourself Muslim, but you know, just want to you know, um, make yourself distinct from the Sharia, from the Shiites, the best path is the path of moderation. Now, we love all the righteous companions from the Prophet's family, and we definitely love Ali, anhu, and Fatima, anha, and Hassan Hussein, they're all righteous, and so we love them all. They're, they're companions, and they're the family of Prophet Muhammad Hassan. They're from a noble line, descendants of Ibrahim and Ismail Muslim. So we love them all. They're from the best generation. They're from the best of all people, and we love and honor them all. But we don't go beyond the bounds by ascribing to them qualities which don't belong to them and which they shouldn't have. And we don't make dua to them and we don't supplicate to them. We don't ask for expiation of our sins through them or anything like that. All that stuff is shirk or will lead to shirk if it isn't directly shirk. And all that stuff is really shirk. You cannot go through any individual. We can't even go through Prophet Muhammad and make dua through him. We pray to Allah directly. If we were to pray through Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu or Ali or Fatima or any, anyone else, what's the difference between us and the Christians? They pray to Allah through Isa alayhi salam and we condemn them for that. And then what if, how can we go and do the same thing and say we're going to pray to Allah, ask Allah for blessings or ask Allah for rewards through his messenger or through the righteous companion, anything like that, or even people who are lower than that level. I mean, what's the difference? There's not really much difference, is there? Only thing we're saying that we work, we we pray through them, but they're not God. You know, it's not really much difference. So we can't we can't go down that road. That's a dangerous road and leads to shirk. So the best path is the path of moderation. We love them, but we don't go beyond the bounds, and we leave it at that. We also go to the other. Don't go to the other extreme, like many Shia do, and we don't definitely do not curse the companions of Prophet Muhammad or his wives. This is almost certainly guarantee anyone who does this the hellfire. So we have to be very careful. We do not curse them. We have to be very careful about speaking about them, not try to say ill about them, because these are people who are loved by Allah. And, you know, saying bad things or cursing the people whom are loved by Allah is dangerous. It's very, very dangerous and will lead to our own destruction. So we have to be very careful. So just want to set that straight, inshallah. And if there are any questions about that, we can discuss that later. Now, Fatima died about six months after her father died, um, Rasulullah She died about six months after he died. And as I mentioned earlier, the Shiites, you know, they 
have a whole lot of exa exaggerated and inaccurate information around there. So if you do a Google search, just type in Fatima, you know, Bint Mohammed or just Fatima, uh, you'll see all sorts of things come out written by her, but most of it, unfortunately, is from a Shia perspective, and, and a lot of it is really overblown. There was actually a ruling dynasty, a, uh, a ruling Shiite dynasty or, or a ruling family called the Fatimids. They were named after Fatima, the Fatimids, they claim to be descended from her lineage, and I don't know as best as that, if that's true or not, but, you know, these Fatimids, they were actually from a branch of Shia called the Ismailis. And Ismailis is one of those extreme branches of Shiites. So, And they ruled over a large portion of the Muslim world for quite a period of time. They had a whole bunch of dysfunction in their family. I mean, sons killing fathers for the rulership and all sorts of, I mean, they were just completely messed up. And, you know, in fact, they were actually the ruling dynasty when the crusaders the european crusaders came through the middle east and came through the muslim world and and eventually conquered jerusalem is actually the fatimids who were the rulers they were ruling over you know a huge empire of sunni muslims but the, the ruling family were actually ismailis or fatimids so eventually uh, uh talking about the crusades right now salahuddin al-ayubi also known as saladin in the english you know um pronunciation, but Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, he overthrew first the Fatimids, he overthrew the Fatimids, took over their kingdom, and then a little bit after that, he went and overthrew the Crusaders, the Europeans, and kicked them out of Jerusalem, Jerusalem also. Salahuddin was not a Fatimid, he was not a Shia, he was Sunni Muslim by, by every standard that we know of. He was a Sunni Muslim, he was not a Fatimid or a Shia or Ismaili, anything like that. But all this stuff takes place hundreds of years after the Prophet's death, so we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but just wanted to let you see how um, the Prophet's uh, family, especially Fatima, how you know some of the repercussions are still being felt today and how it goes much deeper in history and doesn't just end with their death. So we covered pretty much everybody in the Prophet's household so far prior to Revelation. We spoke about Khadijah. We spoke about Zayd ibn Haditha. spoke about his cousin Ali ibn Abi Talib. spoke about his four daughters, Zainab, Raqqaya, Umm Kulthum, and Fatima. May Allah be pleased with all of them. Now, around the time that Prophet Muhammad sallallahu turned 36 years old, he began to withdraw from society, and he began to spend more time in, in meditation and contemplation. And he would go into the mountains surrounding Mecca, and he would go there to meditate and be alone and separate himself from the rest of society. During these periods of solitude, he would worship Allah. And even though the exact form of worship that we you know of like we know of as Salat was not hadn't been revealed yet, hadn't been taught to him yet, but he still would worship Allah in whatever way he knew how. Allah knows best. But he would spend his time worshiping Allah and contemplating on the society around him and contemplating on life in general. So most likely his method, and Allah knows best, his method of, of worship at that time was most likely just dua, just supplication. So um, Allah knows best, you know, Salat, as we know it today with Takbir and Surah Al-Fatiha and Ruku and Sajjah and all that hadn't been revealed yet. So the most he could probably do at that time was just dua, just supplication. Now, as he approached the age of 40, which is the age that most of the prophets received their message, Allah began to prepare him for the coming message. Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu he began to experience what we know of as true dreams in the six months leading up to the first revelation. Basically, he would have dreams that will come true exactly as he dreamed them. 
Now, all of us have dreams, but most of our dreams, you know, they're filled with a bunch of nonsense from our daily lives. They're, they have suggestions from the shayateen. You know, they might have a little bit of truth mixed in. But the prophets of Allah and the Rasulullah, all of them, they had true dreams. Their dreams were pure revelation. Anybody else? We can't say that our dreams are revelation. There's no way we can say our dreams are revelation. The revelation ended with the Quran. So we can't say our dreams are revelations. Anybody comes to you saying that my sheikh or my my um my imam or so and so had a dream and you know and they're talking about something that's beyond what Islam currently is, you know, that's not revelation. It's, if it is, it's not coming from Allah, it's coming from something else. And so that means it's misguidance. So be careful of that stuff. Only the prophets had dreams that were revelation, but we may still have dreams that have truth to them, but that doesn't mean that it's new truth. It's just confirming what is already there, or it's, you know, maybe some kind of warning come from Allah. We, Allah knows best what it, what it is, but it's not revelation, so to speak. It's nothing new. Okay, but this revelation, this was what was happening with Prophet Muhammad. He was having true dreams, and he it wasn't mixed with any nonsense or any whispers from the shayateen. It was true dreams. He dreamed it. He wake up, and exactly what he dreamed will happen exactly as he saw it in his dream. And during the month of Ramadan, and this is uh this is coming from Rahik and Maktoum. I don't know how um I forgot the brother's name who did that book. I don't know how he came to this, but I'm going to go by what he says because. You know, this is the best that I, I could find. So it was during the month of Ramadan, his 40th year. We know that much is true. We know he was 40 years old. We know it was definitely during the month of Ramadan. And um, according to uh, the author of Al-Rahik al he said it was the 21st night of Ramadan. The angel Jibril came to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu while he was in the cave of Hira on Jabba Nur, the mountain of light, and brought the first revelation of the Quran. Right now we're going to go through the story of the revelation as it came to us from the Prophet's wife, Aisha, anha. the angel came to him, he came to Prophet Muhammad and he commanded him with the word Iqra, which is the Arabic word for read or recite. In fact, the word Quran comes from the same word Iqra, and the Quran has the same root word as Iqra, and Oqara is a root word, and that means to read or to recite, and the Quran is a reading or a recitation. The, the angel came to him and commanded him Iqra. And Prophet Muhammad, like most Arabs of his time, he was illiterate. He didn't know how to he didn't know how to read. And he was also really frightened and scared about what was happening to him. So he just respond he responded, Ma anabiqari. And that means I am not a reader or I am not a reciter. So the angel squeezed him real tight and then released him. He squeezed he had squeezed him so tight that Prophet Muhammad had great um he could barely breathe, and it was like a, a big stress upon his chest. And the angel again said, Iqra, once again, read. The Prophet once again replied, Ma I am not a reader. I cannot read. I do not know how to read. So the angel, he squeezed him again for a third time. And then he began to recite the opening lines of Surah Al-Iqra, also known as Surah Al-Alaq. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Ikara Bismirabika Ladi Kholaka. Kholaka in Sana min Alaka. Ikara Warabukal Akram Alladi Alama bin Kalam Alaman in Sana Malam Ya Alam. The translation of these verses are Read in the name of your Lord who created. Created mankind from a suspended clot. Read and your Lord is the most noble, the one who taught with a pen. He taught man what he did not know. I just want to quickly pause real quick. We'll go over these, uh, something in, the, in one of these verses. 
you know, in our time, you know, there are some people who say that this verse, "Ikra bismi min alak." Some people say this is a verse is evidence of the Quran's miraculous nature because Allah says He created mankind from a suspended clot, and this is scientific knowledge that was not available back then. Allah knows best if. Um, that was his intention. Allah knows best of that. But to a certain extent, though, that is true. The word alak, it does mean something that is attached and suspended to something else. We know that the fertilized egg in the mother's womb, it does, after fertilization, eventually attach to the wall of the uterus and it's suspended there and it begins its development from there. And so, yes, that knowledge you know, most likely wasn't known back then. I seriously doubt it was. But I just want to warn you too much about getting too involved and trying to look for scientific miracles of the Quran. And certainly, there are some things in the Quran that have been relatively proven, rel- relatively recently proven by modern science. And that is definitely an indication of the Quran's miraculous nature. But that just but just just not get too wrapped up in that it's good to know but the scientific aspects aspects of the quran you know they may or may not prove you know the the validity of the quran because the science may change and just because the science changes doesn't mean that the quran changes so when we know something about science now we know 50 years from now we may find out something new about it the quran is still correct just our understanding of science has changed and so we don't want to necessarily peg the Quran too much to science. And there are some things that is definitely there and we should look at and it is good to know. But the uh, there's really a lot more, much more to the Quran that proves that it couldn't have come from anything else except, to, except from Allah. There's so much more to it than that. There's so many subtle hints and so much subtle evidences that most of us, myself included, we might not ever really fully appreciate. It goes much deeper than just, you know, a few scientific miracles and that is good and all but there's it's much much deeper than that i'm going to give you one example from surah al-fatiha this is a sort of that all of us all of us should know inshallah now you know in english you in english to make a complete sentence in english you have to have a verb you know so you can't have a complete sentence in english without having at least one verb in that sentence but in arabic you can have a complete sentence and not have a verb. It's called um, a nominal sentence. You can have a nominal sentence in Arabic, which means a, a, a sentence that has nouns, maybe a preposition, but doesn't, maybe even an adjective, but doesn't have a verb. And you can have that in Arabic, and it can be a complete sentence, but that will never work in English. You know, that's just a rule in English and just a rule in Arabic. And so, in Arabic, you can have a, a complete sentence that just cons- consists of two words. For instance, Ana Rajal, which means I am a man. That just completes that just has two words. Ana Rajal. I am a man. That's it. And but this is a complete sentence in Arabic. But you can never have that in English. You know, you gotta have at least one verb in English. But in Arabic you don't have to have a verb. The verb to be, you know, which is that verb I am or am it's understood in Arabic. Because it's understood when you say Ana Rajal, it's understood. So it doesn't have you don't have to have a specific verb there. Okay? So with that, however, let's look at the. Um, let's assume first of all that the uh, the line Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is a part of Surah Al-Fatiha. Now, there's some dis- disagreement among scholars if uh, the if the Basmala Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is actually one of the verses of Surah Al-Fatiha. But to simplify things, I'm going to say that it is for now. Okay, that Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is a part of Surah Al-Fatiha. 
So the first three verses of Surah Al-Fatiha all describe Allah. We saw Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim describes Allah as says in the name of Allah, the, the most gracious and most merciful. It is, it is describing Allah. The second verse, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. It attributes all praises to Allah and describes Him as the Lord of the worlds. The third verse, which is almost a repeat of the first verse, Ar-Rahman Rahim. Same thing, it's describing Allah as the most gracious and the most merciful. And the, ver- and the fourth verse, Maliki Yawmiddin. It describes Allah as the master of the day of judgment. This is four verses, I said three I believe, but it's four verses actually. Now, none of these verses that describe Allah from Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim to Maliki Yomuddin have a single verb in them. And none of these verses that are speaking about Allah directly have a single verb, not one. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Maliki Yomuddin, no verbs. It's not until the fifth verse when the focus switches in the, in the Surah Al-Fatiha, when the focus switches from Allah to mankind's dependence upon Allah, that we begin to start seeing the verbs. In the fifth verse, Allah says, You we worship, and from you we seek help. This is mankind making dua to Allah. Basically, na'abudu and nasta'in, these are both verbs in Arabic. And the rest of the verses of Surah Al-Fatiha, all the way through to the end, they all are the same thing. They're all fo- focused on man's dependence upon Allah, and they all contain verbs. But the first four verses, which are all about Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, no verbs in, in there at all. Now, we can debate what this means, and truthfully, only Allah knows. Perhaps it's an, it's an indication that, you know, it's up to mankind to take action to seek Allah's mercy and guidance. Allah knows best, but... You know, of course, we should always spend time reading and pondering over the meaning of the Quran. But my whole point, and inshallah, we'll illustrate this more as we go through the class and more verses come through that are related to the revelation and related to, related to the sorry, related to the life of Prophet Muhammad. So we discuss more verses that are related to the Sita. Is that the is that the miraculous nature of the Quran? It goes much further and is much deeper than just uh, the few scientific facts and historical points. Those are good. But it's much more than that. These things are important, the science and the history that's proven in the Quran. But the simple beauty of the linguistic nature of the Quran is really amazing. It's just outstanding. Just from that, from Surah Al-Fatiha, I hope that you can just see some of the beauty of the Quran just from that one little one little point, inshallah. And there's much, 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 much more than that. And, you know, we have to continue reading the Quran and continue studying. So I just want you to see that, you know, try to look at the Quran from more than one point of view. As in our world today, science, you know, is, is like the science is something that proves almost everything. We try to we've, we've been raised up on science as being the ultimate proof of everything. But, you know, science is just once once again a sign of Allah. You know, it's it doesn't trump the revelation in any, in any way. After this episode, after the angel had come down, the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu um, and gave him the message of, of the revelation. Prophet Muhammad ran down from the mountain and went home to his wife, Khadija. He called out to her and asked her to, to wrap him up because he was afraid and he was shocked by what, he had just, well, by what had just happened. And so she came to him and she, and she helped wrap him up and he told her what had happened in the mountain. And then he said, Ya Khadija, Mali. He said, Oh Khadija, what is wrong with me? What's happening to me? 
And so she comforted him and she assured him that there was nothing wrong with him. And she then began to give him all these reasons of why Allah would not do anything to harm him, how, why he can't be crazy, why there's no way a, a shaitan can be messing with him or torturing him or anything like that. She said that he keeps good relations with his family, that he's generous with his guests, that he helps the poor and the needy. He helps those who are who are in trouble or facing calamity and that he always speaks the truth. He laid out all these reasons why you're such a good man. There's no way that a shaitan or, or Allah would be punishing you in any way. And now from here we see that we see Khadija's loyalty to her husband. And now she, how she was willing to stick by her husband and comfort him and take care of him. And this loyalty is this is the loyalty that a wife has to her husband is something that men speaking as a man do remember and we do appreciate it so this is advice to to sisters inshallah you know whether you're married now or hope to get married inshallah to be loyal to your husband in his time of need you know some some sisters may Allah have mercy on them you know they're quick to criticize a husband and quick to remind him of his faults and yes of course there are men who are the same way as well who do that to their wives also but we're talking about sisters right now all right. Now these quick, quick, quick criticism, these back and forth, these little blurbs and everything, they break down marriage bonds and they can lead to bad feelings and discord between the husband and wife. This doesn't mean that this doesn't mean that a wife shouldn't correct her husband when he's wrong or give advice when he's doing something silly or foolish. But, you know, definitely she should be willing to do that. But she should also be willing to stick by her husband when he needs her, stick by him through thick and through thin, just like Khadija anha was she was by her husband's side. He told her what he saw. She knows her husband's a truthful and kind and generous person. She knows her husband doesn't lie. She believes him. And she was the first believer. She's the first person to accept Islam. And uh, actually, um, while I'm speaking of this, the first martyr, the first shaheed for Islam was also a woman as well. Uh, we'll get to that. Her name is uh, Sumaya. We'll get to her, inshallah, later on. But Khadija was the first believer. And I spoke before about how the love between these two was something very exemplary and something amazing how these two loved each other so much. So this loyalty that a wife can show to her husband, it creates deep bonds of love and trust that go beyond just friendship and romance and all that. It creates like a, like a mutual dependency between the husband and the wife. So if you hear a man, he's talking about his wife, he might say something like, man, I can't live with her. I can't live without her. You know, he's basically saying that, even though he might be, be upset with her at that point in time, you know, he needs her. He needs her just as much as she needs him. Okay, now, now back to the story now. Khadija, after she had comforted him and he had calmed down and she had wrapped him up and he had calmed down and the fear had left him, she took him to go see her cousin, Waraka ibn Nufal. Waraka ibn Nufal. And he had, during the time of uh, ignorance, during the time when the... Um, well, basically before the revelation, he had converted to Christianity and he used to write the Bible or the Injil as they knew it at that time in Arabic. So he was a very old man, but he obviously knew most likely he definitely knew Arabic. He was Arab himself, but he also most likely either knew Hebrew or he knew um, um, uh, Greek, which is which was the predominant, which was the language that the Bible was first written. It's first written in Greek or Aramaic, which was the original language of of uh, Isa Salam. So maybe he knew all three, but he at least knew Arabic and maybe one other language because he was able to translate the Bible into Arabic and he wrote it down. And he was an Arab Christian. He was an old man at this time. He had he was an old man. He had gone blind. He was an Arab Christian who had learned from 
the uh, both the Christian and the Jewish scriptures. He has studied both of the books of the Ahmad Kitab. He was ne- learned in both of them. And Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he met with Waraka. Khadija took him to see Waraka. And Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he told him what happened. He related what happened in the mountain and in the cave. And Waraka ibn al-Fal said that this angel that visited him was Namus. And he's an-Namus. And Namus means the law or the code or the giver of the law. And and this this is uh, was probably a Hebrew term for Jibril alayhi salam, and Allah knows best. But Waraka said that this was the same angel that had visited Musa alayhi salam. And he confirmed, the Waraka basically confirmed, based on his understanding of the scriptures of Ahlun Kitab, that Prophet Muhammad wasalam, was truly a prophet. So Waraka then said that he wished that he was a younger man and that he could live to see the day when the people of Mecca chased Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu out. And Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu said that, will they, really, will they really chase me out? Is that really going to happen? And Wadaka replied that, yes, that will most certainly happen. There's no way that you can come with this kind of message. And no one has come with this kind of message before, and the people haven't chased them out. It, happens, it happened with Musa alayhi salam. Now, this is me speaking, not Wadaka. It happened with Musa alayhi salam. It happened with Ibrahim alayhi salam. Uh, it happened with Lot uh, uh, alayhi salam. You know, um, when the people come, when the messengers come with this new message, the establishment of the city, in, in most cases, chased them out. There are only a couple cases where the establishment accepted it. And even that was after some time. Uh, there is a Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Actually, the city of Mecca did eventually accept Islam, but it was after, you know, they had been beaten into submission. And also, um, Prophet Yaqub, uh, he he fled away from the city, um, got swallowed by the well. And eventually, Allah, you know, released him from that. But when he came back, you know, to the city, the people had accepted had accepted Islam, and so. But otherwise, most of the prophets, when they came with a message to a new message to uh, their people, almost always the establishment chases them out or forces them to leave or make the conditions so bad where they, had, where they have to leave. Ibrahim salam was thrown into a fire. Isa uh, salam, the people tried to crucify him. Allah saved them, but they tried to crucify him. You know, Musa alayhi salam, you know, he had, to, even after bringing, even Allah brought so many signs with the, uh, with the locusts and the, and the staff turning into a snake and the magicians rejecting Fir'aun and coming to, to, and, and accepting Musa's faith. And with all these signs that came to them, they still couldn't stay and they still had to leave because Fir'aun was just not having it. You know, all these signs came to him and are on this point. People sometimes, this comes in the Quran also, in time of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu and also even our time, people say, well, people say, well, why did God stop with all the miracles? The Bible and the Bible, and they all talk about all these miracles. Why doesn't God bring these miracles now? Why doesn't he bring these miracles now to prove his, to prove his, that he's there, that he's, that he's true? And the thing is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did that already. He brought miracles to all these people, and they saw the miracles. I mean, they saw Ibrahim alayhi salam thrown into the fire and not die. And they still didn't accept his his faith. I mean, Pharaoh saw the <laughs> he saw the the sea split part before him, and the people of Israel go through, and he still didn't believe that right there. I, I mean, seriously. I mean, how you would think that that would be a proof enough, really, after everything else that happened to him, you know, seeing an entire sea part before your eyes, you would think that would be enough to convince somebody. Okay, maybe these guys are onto something here. But that wasn't enough for them. And Bani Israel themselves. I mean, Allah, Allah literally sent them food from the sky. 
He sent them food from the sky. They saw the miracles themselves. They saw Musa Alayhisalam receiving revelation. And they, not all of them, but some of them still wound up worshiping the calf. I mean, really, the people of Mecca, they not just the Quran, and they recognized, they knew the Quran was the truth. They knew that this type of that this type of, of writing, this type of recitation cannot come from anything else except for, except for Allah. They try to call it poetry, they try to call it a sorcery, they try to call it everything, and they knew it wasn't the truth. They admitted it amongst themselves. And even with all that, they still didn't believe. They went out and fought the Prophet and Despite overwhelming numbers and overwhelming advantages, they still lost every single time, except for a few, except for, you know, um, the Battle of the Hood and a couple of others. But for the most part, the Quraysh really just got beaten into submission. And you would think that after seeing the moon split apart, after seeing, you know, a small force wipe out a big force in the Battle of Butter, after seeing an even larger force, you know, get turned around in the Battle of the Trench, you would think that they would kind of come to some realization that maybe this guy is on to something. Maybe we should, you know, see what he's talking about and actually try to get some peace here and not try, you know, and try to see what he's talking about, try to come along with him. But miracles is not enough to prove things to people. You know, it's, Allah has brought miracles to many different people before them. Uh, Prophet, uh, I think it's Saleh, Allah brought the, um, the camel out of the mountain mountain split camel comes out right before the eyes and they still go and do all sorts of things i mean the people of lut they were involved in sodomy and homosexuality they come to the angels think of the angels are men they're knocking on lut's door trying to grab at the angels boom they all go blind they still don't believe you know his wife who was a, a wife of a prophet lut's wife she sees these things she knows her husband's receiving revelation and she still doesn't believe really i mean Prophet Nuh, alayhi salam, I mean, he had a son. Uh, when the rains are coming down, he said to everybody, the rain's going to come. It's going to wipe you out. It's going to kill you. You need to come on, come on and join me. You know, his own son, he sees the rain coming down. He sees the waters lifting up. He sees the waves and everything. He sees all the stuff. And his, son, his father says, son, come on and join me. Come and get on the boat. Come join me. And his son is like, no, dad, I'm going to go to that mountain over there. It, I mean, it's really, seeing revelation or seeing... um. Miracles happen is not enough. Isa alayhi salam performed amazing miracles by the permission of Allah. He raised the dead by the permission of Allah. He took a bird and uh, he formed a, a clay bird and breathed life into it by the, by the permission of Allah. And the, and the bird flew away. Uh, the, the, his companions, the disciples, they asked for food from heaven. Allah brought down a full table full of food from heaven for him. He healed the blind and so many miracles that he did by the permission of Allah. And the people still didn't believe him. So simply having an amazing thing in front of someone's eyes is not enough to convince people all the time. So just people try to say, why doesn't Allah bring more miracles? Why doesn't he send down an angel and all this stuff? I mean, people want Allah to take care of everything for them. I mean, he wants them to take care of their, I mean, for for evidence, they want, they demand that Allah takes care of not only their their physical needs, but also their spiritual needs. I mean, they don't want to do any work on their own. And that doesn't always work. And furthermore, the Quran as a literary miracle rather than a physical miracle like the miracles of all the other prophets, the miracles of all the other prophets, they were just good for that point in time. Whereas the miracle of the Quran is, you know, is good forever. And is it'll be here and Allah and this is once again more proof how the Quran has still been held in the same form, in the same words. Basically there's a few 
differences based on uh, the different dialects at the time and a few differences in whether some word, the ending of some words, but there are no wholesale differences of the Quran. There's not like one chapter missing from this Quran and another chapter missing from that version. You don't have that kind of stuff, even sentences. You know, the most you may have would be uh, different endings of certain words that may turn a word from a, from a from an adverb to a noun or uh, uh, we got plugging Arabic grammar is may change the na- the meaning of the of the verse slightly, but there are no wholesale differences in the Quran like you have in the other scriptures where you know you have one sect has a certain number of chapters in that book and another sect has another chapter. You don't have that kind of stuff. Even the Shiites, you know, we just got finished talking about it. even they they still follow the same Quran that we do. I mean, no different. Now, they may say other things about it, but they have the same Quran that we do. So, uh, as the Sunni Muslims do, they don't have a different version of the Quran or anything like that. And even if, you know, every single Quran was burnt right now, and every single CD and every single database that, entires Quran, that, the, entire, that the Quran is saved on was wiped out, we could re- reproduce the entire Quran in a matter of minutes. Uh, okay, it may take longer than that to write it down, but you know what I mean? We could reproduce the Quran almost immediately because so many people have memorized the Quran and they can write it out by hand and millions of Muslims around the world have memorized the Quran. And inshallah, there's a practice that will continue for as long as Allah wills and the Quran will remain intact until the day of judgment as Allah has promised us. So there's no, this is once again the enduring miracle, one of the, one of the enduring miracles of the Quran, how it has been kept whole and kept, uh, and kept uh, intact without any changes, despite all the problems in the Muslim world, all the revolutions and the different you know, dynasties that have come through and the different theologies and different sects and all this stuff that has come through. The Quran has stayed the same. And this line of uh, stability, it carries throughout much of Islam where you can go to many parts of the Muslim world where even people follow different schools of thoughts as different madhabs. The prayer from Muslim to mu- from Muslim group to Muslim group is essentially the same. There are some differences between different madhabs, but they're essentially the same over and over and over again. The basic movements are almost the same throughout, all, throughout the entire Muslim world. And that's just evidence of the enduring miracle of Islam and enduring miracle of the Quran. Now, after Rasulullah received this first message, he had gone to visit Waraka. You know, he began to wait for more miracle, more revelation to come, but it didn't come right away. We want to talk about the first three three uh, surahs that came to Quran. There's a difference of opinions. Everybody agrees that Iqra is the first. There's no disagreement with that one. But there are other verses... Um, that people disagree with. Some say it might have been Muzamil. Some say it may have been um, uh, Suratul uh, Muddathir. Some say it might have been uh, Suratul An'am. But, you know, Allah knows best which one came first, you know, after Suratul Iqra. But there's a long period of time in between the revelation. And so, for a while, Prabhupada thought that maybe this was just, you know, uh, a one-time thing because he began to think that okay, if I just experience this once, I never see it again. This is maybe an indication that maybe there's something wrong with me. But um, when he began to become really worried about it and feeling really down about the problems about not receiving any more revelation, Angel Jabril would come to him. He wouldn't give him revelation, but he would just call out to him, remind him that he's the messenger of Allah. 
and eventually the revelation would continue and we'll go we'll get into that but for the, after Khadija had accepted Islam the next people to accept Islam were the people of the Prophet's household that would uh, most likely be Ali ibn Abi Talib then Zayd ibn Haditha and they were both children at the time but the first adult to accept the Prophet's uh, message was Abu Bakr Abu Bakr was a couple of years I believe younger than Prophet Muhammad he was about two years younger than Prophet Muhammad he was the Prophet's best friend they were very good friends and Abu Bakr was from a small clan within the Quraysh but um, he, he, they were best friends and he accepted the message of Islam also immediately so uh, Abu Bakr was the first adult male to accept Islam uh, whereas Ali is known as being the first male in general but he was still a child at the time and Khadija was the first person male or female to accept Islam now, we're going to stop here inshallah we have about 10 minutes left is are there any questions about what we've gone through so far? Waiyakum, any questions? Alhamdulillah. Inshallah, as we go forward, we'll be discussing each Sahaba as we come to them. So, inshallah, next class we'll have more about. We'll talk about some of the first companions to accept Islam. Uh, in the last few minutes. Just um, after Abu Bakr was one of the primary proponents of Islam, uh, he even even before the Prophet began to preach it openly, and we'll get into the differences of the how he first only kept it within his, his close family and friends, and then brought it out to everybody. Abu Bakr he he was a merchant, and as I mentioned earlier, the Quraysh were mostly merchants. Prophet Muhammad himself before marriage was a merchant himself, so Abu Bakr was part of the a wealthy merchant class of Mecca. So he would uh, he he took the um, the the message of Islam. He began to share it with his closest friends, who were also merchants. So many of the first companions were from this this merchant class. These merchants, these this merchant class of Mecca, who were very wealthy and were very established and very very established in the city. For instance, um, Abdurrahman ibn Auf, Saad ibn Abi Bakas, Talha, Talha. Uh, Talha ibn, ibn Awam, Zubair ibn Awam, and Talha, I can't remember Talha's last name, uh, but all these Sahabas were part of that merchant class, and some of them were quite wealthy. For him. I mean, um, Abdurrahman ibn Auf was very wealthy, as was Abu Bakr himself was pretty wealthy as well. So we, we can talk about wealth and business entrepreneurship in Islam, but just keep in mind that the first companions, you know, as many of them were you had your your Bilal's, your slaves. You know, you had your Bilal's and the Sumayyas and the, the and the um the the poor Muslims. Of course, most of the Muslims, the early Muslims, were poor, and they were either slaves or from the lower classes of lower classes of Meccan society. But there were some who were up there and who had wealth. Uh, so, you know, just we'll talk about that later, inshallah. But I don't want anyone to get too wrapped up in, you know the wealth and all that stuff of the early companions. Keep in mind though all all these companions that had wealth, they spent their wealth in the cause of Allah. You know, they didn't just hoard wealth just for the heck of it. Allah blessed them with wealth and they used it in the in the in the service of Allah and the furtherance of Islam. So there's a difference between their wealth and what they do and what most people, Muslim and otherwise, how they use their wealth now. And their wealth didn't stop them from being committed to Islam. And uh striving and struggling and even fighting putting their life on the line and on the line for Islam.
Okay. Well, if there are no more questions, um, I must either be a very good teacher or a very bad teacher <laughs> if you guys get it this quickly. You know, I know a lot of these, a lot of this story you probably have heard before, so I know the. But we just go into more detail than hopefully um, happens most in most cases. But Uthman himself actually was part of that merchant class as well. Uthman ibn Affan, whom we spoke of earlier, he was also part of that merchant class. Okay. All right. Well, inshallah, if there, was, um, if there are no more questions, uh, I can't really go into anything right now that will not take me beyond beyond the time. And I don't really have any, I don't really have it really prepared. Anyway, I just said anyway. So if there's nothing else here, inshallah, we're going to close out. Alright. Uh